If you're able to remain standing just a tad bit longer, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verse 14, page 61, I believe, if you'd like to use a Bible from the pew. Thank you guys for leading us this morning, helping us to sing to the Lord. We are always grateful for your leadership in this way. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. This is God's word for us this morning. And uh, after I read this word, then you may be seated. There was confusion last week over that matter. So, uh, uh, but I'll read the passage, I'll motion for you to be seated, and then I'll pray. This is God's word, and God says there in verse 14, You shall not commit adultery. Father, thank you for your word. We realize that um, your words are perfect. They are a reflection of your eternal will. And so we come to this word this morning asking that you would be present with us, that you would give us understanding, that you would incline our hearts toward the goodness of this word and that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things I want us to think about this morning from this passage of Scripture. First of all, and just a standard procedure as we've looked at each of the ten words individually. First, we want to spend some moment together understanding this seventh word. And then after we've done that, which will probably be the larger part of our time together, then we will spend some moments thinking about practicing the seventh word. Re remember what I said last week, perhaps, and that is uh, commands six, seven, and eight are just two words apiece. The word no, and then, then, and then the term at, at hand. No elaborate explanation, uh, just a clear prohibition. In this case, literally, the seventh word says to us, no adultery. Now, as we understand this seventh word, I want to do so by, first of all, uh, defining the term, and then um, acknowledging um, something that is afloat in our broader culture, and then understanding the importance of marriage itself. First of all, defining the term. What is adultery? Uh, adultery, and I would frame this around three statements. Adultery is physical intimacy with someone else's spouse. Adultery is physical in intimacy with someone um, other than your spouse. And I think I would be safe to add a third uh, statement of definition here, physical intimacy with someone who is not your spouse, which is a slight different variation from the second point, but we won't wade into that. Positively, the seventh command is designed to protect and respect marriage. Now, in my estimation, if we look at the second half of, of the Ten Commandments, particularly Commands 5, 
6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. The commands that pertain to uh, horizontal relationships, relationships with people around us, the art of loving our neighbor well. Of, of all of those commands, nothing prickles our modern culture quite like the seventh word. In a sense, nothing tests whether or not our ideas and our morals quite like our posture toward the seventh word. Nothing clarifies whether we have the mind of Christ or whether we think according to the spirit of the age. Our culture advocates its autonomy. And as such, this seventh word makes no sense to it whatsoever. Certain sound bites become truisms that reflect the spirit of the age. Statements such as, my body is my own, my ideas are my own, and what I decide to do in privacy with another consenting person ain't nobody's business but our own. You see, these notions, these statements are the underpinning of a culture who rejects the validity of the seventh word. But let me suggest an alternative approach to thinking about those statements. Consider the scriptures. Concerning the statement, my body is my own, which was in vogue until just recent COVID considerations crept in. You'll get it later, but just don't laugh at the wrong place in the sermon. But consider 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. It says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is within you, whom you have from God, the implication of that, he goes on to say, that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. To a culture that says, my body is my own, the scripture says, no, 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 you are not your own. You belong to God. To a culture that says, my ideas are my own. The scripture speaks to that cultural mindset. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our thoughts are not our own. Our thoughts are to coincide with God's thoughts. And any thought that you and I have that does not coincide with God's thoughts, we are to shuck it and we are to adapt the mindset 
that Christ orders us to have. To a spirit of the age that says, what I decide to do in privacy with another consenting adult ain't nobody's business but my own. Well, you remember the episode with Joseph and Potiphar's wife in the book of Genesis. In a sense, those were just possibly two consenting adults. At least Potiphar's wife was a consenting. But what if Joseph would have consented? I mean, that just would have been done in privacy. Two consenting adults agreeing, hey, this is good. What's interesting is what the Scriptures say Joseph's response was. But Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We are reminded that things that we do in the notion of privacy are not. Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us, and um, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are laid bare and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. No, even private acts of consenting adults, the Scripture speaks and says, for this is the will of God for you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, your sanctification, in other words, your holiness, your set-apartness. And he goes on to explain that in this context, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles do who do not know God. You see, this seventh word only makes sense if we buy into a host of other biblical uh, assumptions and categories, such as we are not our own. Our body is not our own. Our ideas are not our own. And what we do in the privacy with other consenting adults is our own business. The Scriptures speak to each of those and dismantle each of those cultural assumptions. You shall not commit adultery. No adultery. Those two words, and this might come as a shock, those two words were not hatched in some prudish, puritanical era crafted by people who were angry and miserable, wishing to impose their joyless, uptight existence on the rest of us. That's how it looks to our culture. No, these words are from a loving father to his well-loved children, the people whom he redeems unto himself to belong to him, the people whom he preserves so that they might carry out in this world his true and his good and his beautiful purposes on this earth. No, this seventh word 
is from our God, the God who made each of us. This seventh word is true, and it is good, and it is beautiful, for it protects and respects the institution of marriage. Well, why is that important? What's the importance of marriage that God thinks it needs to be respected and protected? Again, I, 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 I point out these things that on the one hand, uh, might, like, duh, I mean, you don't, but I point out this because we live in a culture that is catechizing us uh, to think otherwise. And so I, 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 I bear down into this that we might seek the Scriptures to have a shared understanding of what God has to say to us. So why is marriage important? You know, we're prone to think that life should be all about us. And um, in that context, here's how it's been concocted in our culture today. Um, that life is about us and that God comes along, that He exists, to, He comes along to listen to what our hearts tell us we want to do, and then He um, approves of it. I mean, after all, it's what our hearts want us to do, and so God says, I just want you to be happy, just do what's, what your heart tells you to do. Uh, and then he works real hard to do that for us so that we might be happy. And if, and if somewhere along the way marriage promotes that, uh, then he helps us find a spouse. But if along the way, if marriage impedes that, then he helps us to get shed of our spouse. But the Bible's storyline is of an altogether different narrative. The Bible's storyline is not like that at all. A, a central, not the, but a central piece to the unfolding plans of God involved this thing called marriage. So crucial marriage is to God's plan that He defines it and assigns it its purposes. Here's what I would offer to you as a biblical definition of marriage. Marriage is a comprehensive, exclusive, lifelong uh, union of a male and a female. Let me, let me read that again, only unpack it. Marriage is a comprehensive, and what I mean by that is it is the uniting of a relationship that is united both body and soul. No, no, no other relationship on the face of this earth is as comprehensive as that. It's not only comprehensive, but it is exclusive. In other words, there, is a unique, there are unique and mutual obligations uh, to each other that reside only in the confines 
of such a monogamous relationship. It is the comprehensive, exclusive, um, uh, uh, lifelong union. What the Lord joins together, let no man put asunder of a male and a female. That is, only a man and a woman can unite together in a complementary one flesh union so that the outcome of such a union brings forth children. But love is love, our culture tells us. Yes, uh, we are told that by the activists who have a, an agenda. We are told that by the elitists who can't seem to understand that you can't be the woman of the year if you are a biological male. These are the smart people? Now, before I wade in deeper, let me, let me throw in a couple of caveats that I'm not going to have time to, to, to think through with you this morning. And, 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 yet, and yet these caveats are issues that the Scriptures pertain to, that are a heaviness upon our hearts, perhaps. Um, one caveat would be the subject of infertility. We live in a fallen world and um, there is profound pain from couples who experience infertility and the searing loss of such an experience. But I can't go into that this morning. There is the notion of singleness, which the Scriptures speak of, as a high calling. They are exceptional, meaning they are, they are not the norm, but they are exceptional and no second-class status falls upon them. They are to remain celibate in their singleness. They are a part of a family, the family of God, a local church. They have the opportunity to serve the Lord with undivided loyalties and attention. A couple other caveats is the caveat of divorce. So we, again, we live in a fallen world, and the Scriptures make provision of such challenges and difficulties of life in a fallen world. And then a fourth caveat is I acknowledge that my design in our time together this morning is not to add further injury or guilt, or harm to those who have experienced both the pain and the guilt of adultery. With that said, the first purpose of marriage, as the Scriptures define it, by, uh, and, and what I mean by that is... Um, what I'm about to say about this first purpose of marriage is, is not a distinctly Christian concept. 
Marriage finds its origin and its explanation in the creation of the world by God. It is a, it is a matter of the order of creation. And it's true for all peoples everywhere, for all times. It's universal. For we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and God blessed them and when He made male and female, Adam and Eve. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and, and over every living creature that moves on the earth. The purpose, a prime purpose, a first purpose of marriage is to fill the earth with image bearers. And as image bearers, they have the calling to um, rule and care for this world with the goal in mind that, the, that, that, that parents would raise a godly offspring so that from one generation to the next, godly offspring are being raised up who would attend to life on this planet. Now, the subsidiary role of marriage uh, that fits in with this purpose of filling the earth of, with image bearers is that um, it plays a strategic role in, in how we come together to accomplish the purpose of filling the earth. In other words, God designed a male and a female for this purpose, for the mutual joy for the mutual help, for the mutual comfort, and for the mutual accomplishment in faithfully carrying out the purpose of God for being here on this planet. Bringing forth children who will be raised in the nurture and discipline of the Lord so that this earth would be lived on in a manner that would bring glory to the God who made it. In other words, uh, marriage is no mere private or individual matter. There are global purposes that undergird the institution of marriage. Marriage is about more than two people who are somewhat interested in each other and kind of desirous of each other who enter into some sort of arrangement that suits them for as long as it suits them. No, marriage is a high calling from God in which He ordains as a beautiful partnership for the purposes of carrying out His assignment. So we are to guard marriage. We are to guard it. For it is God's precious original institution, ordained for the exclusive purposes of carrying out His purposes. It, 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 it is done in the context of loving uh, and caring companionship, for that is essential to the carrying out of such purposes. In other words, through marriage, God provides a means 
to harness powerful desires that are capable of destroying human society itself. These desires are so potent that God binds them in holy covenants and through sacred oaths before His presence so that the outcome uh, is families and households and out of that societies and civilizations. Marriages, producing children, is the foundation for civilization. A male and a female called to come together, setting aside their own desires, their own aspirations, their own hopes, and their own dreams, and then forging together as husband and wife a set of godly desires, godly aspirations, godly hopes, and godly dreams. This is done as a common, in a, through a common pursuit of God and His purposes. And it is done on the one hand in common ways, and yet it's done on the other hand in complementary ways that coincide with the unique beauty of male and female. Marriage entails a man who pursues his wife, desiring and delighting in her beauty, And it is in gladly sacrificing and giving himself away for her that he finds who he is. Marriage entails a female who in being pursued, responding to her husband's initiative, and in gladly submitting to his loving leadership, finds who she is. These are countercultural notions. But these are God's orders. And these are God's true and good and beautiful orders. So that together, it, marriage entails a husband and wife leveraging themselves together for the shared life work of companionship and partnership in service to the Lord. And when and if the Lord should bring children into that union, they would raise them with the agenda of Christ-like godliness that they would point their children to Jesus and that they would raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for those grand and glorious and great and precious purposes, this seventh word calls us to guard, protect marriage. Now let me spend a few minutes thinking about protect, practicing, practicing the seventh word. How do we go about obeying the seventh word? Well, 
in a broader approach, I think the first thing we need to do is we need to not be impressed with our culture. We need to challenge the cultural assumptions on marriage. We need to realize that our culture is trying to educate us on lots of matters, but it particularly wants to educate us on this matter of marriage, on the matter of maleness, on the matter of femaleness, on the matter of what human intimacy looks like and consists of. We ought to not be impressed with what they're bringing. Along that line, I think we should differentiate between at least three categories of people. There are people who struggle with these notions and issues, and we need to be uber kind and respectful and loving toward the strugglers. But there are some people who are more than strugglers. They are activists. They have it in for everything I've just said from God's Word. And then a third category of people are what I would call the gatekeepers. They are the money guys. They could be big business. They could be government. But they are the ones who are floating the bill to keep the activists alive. And we need to be savvy to how we respond and and let the gatekeepers uh, push their money around and attempt to catechize us. We need to therefore reject many, 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 many of the wholesale cultural uh, bits of advice concerning marriage. One of which, and I can't go into this, but we need to reject the culture's wisdom on delaying marriage. We need to promote and see the the goodness in notions of chastity and purity. We need to see the beauty in embracing the wisdom of modesty. We need to see the foolishness in entertaining flirtatiousness. We need to In addition to challenging the cultural assumptions uh, on marriage, uh, we need to cultivate loving relationships within marriage. In other words, the enemy is out there, but the enemy is in our own hearts and lives as well. I dare say that no human being out of the blue wakes up one morning and says, this I hadn't thought about this before, but this seems like a good day to have an affair. I don't know what it is about it, but it just seems like a good... No, it comes in a context. And that's why it's important that we cultivate loving relationship within marriage, body and soul. We guard against drift from each other. That we are intentional. Guys, the same thing you did to woo that woman, because you pulled the wool over her eyes, didn't you? The same thing you did to woo that woman needs to be the same thing that you continue to do to show you love that woman. You, you, 
You can't let your guard down and allow drift to be the pattern of your relationship as husband and wife. See, in this case, the problem is not out there what the culture is saying. The problem is our own apathy and laziness and selfishness. We need to guard against under, uh, uh, the, the bonding with someone else who is not our spouse. It starts out cute and innocent. It starts out kind of with flutters of euphoria. There are certain conversations you should not have with someone who is not your spouse. There are certain um, activities of time spent together with someone who is not your spouse. I know that sounds prudish, but are you wanting to guard yourself? Or are you wanting to live on the edge and to see how close you can get to it without falling off? We need to consider the reality of what still lurks in our hearts Like we did last week concerning murder and anger, we could do the same, if time permitted us, this week of considering our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, where He said, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. That seventh word, we heard that this morning. But I say to you, if you've looked on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Jesus warns us, kindly warns us, that adultery starts in the heart and and it includes what occurs in the heart. We have to be careful that we don't become pharisaical of adding additional commands to, to God's Word and, and yet, you and I have to be alert and aware to the things that flood into our phones and our computers and our TVs that are, that, uh, that are live cultures of breeding lust. In conclusion... God's will for us this morning is that we live in such a way that we protect and respect marriage. It's precious to Him. May it be precious to us. In fact, it was so precious in the Old Covenant to violate the preciousness of marriage, to commit adultery, was a penalty deserving death. And that's no longer the penalty, and yet marriage is just as precious today in the Lord's eyes as it was then. In fact, when we shift into the New Testament, the preciousness of marriage is reflected in an altogether greater way. Ironically, Ironically, still involving 
the notion of death. For a distinctly Christian perspective of marriage entails marriage as having an additional purpose as to that which we find in Genesis chapter 1. But for, the, for, for Christians, marriage is to be a picture, a portrait of Christ's love for His bride. That, that, that our marriages, the way a husband and a wife come together and form a comprehensive, exclusive, lifelong union between a male and a female, that, that such a critter or such an institution as that would not just simply be to carry out God's purposes of filling the earth with images, image bearers, but that it would also be a, a means by which we would represent the gospel, Christ loving and laying down his life to rescue a people for himself, a people that the scriptures call the bride of Christ. So ironically, I don't know if you've ever connected the dots, but the opening pages of scripture begin on the matter of marriage and the closing pages of scripture end on the matter of marriage. And yet there's a bit of a categorical shift there. In Revelation chapter 21, we, we are told, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And how we do marriage today is to reflect this simple truth that as Christ laid down His life for sinners, for adulterers, for any other host of acts of rebellion against the God who made us. Christ laid down his life to rescue people like us. And not to rescue us and then keep us at arm's length, but to rescue us and pull us up into his presence. That the very portrait of what we are to portray in the beauty of marital love is, is reflected in the beauty of love that Christ sacrificially and lovingly has for His church. Come to Christ. Behold the one who has laid down His life for you. Any and all who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be brought into the very love of Christ. The, and in so doing, the love of the Father and the love of the Spirit. Turn from yourself and from your sin and trust only Christ who shows himself to be a good husband to his bride. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that your word teaches us and says to us about every aspect of reality, but in particular this morning, what it says to us concerning marriage. And Father, I know that these are not simply important words. They are heavy, sobering words. And we gather here this morning, Father, not to commend ourselves in our own righteousness before your throne, but we gather this morning to receive mercy afresh. 
but all who, come upon, all who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That whosoever confesses his sins shall be pardoned and cleansed of all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, who as our husband has laid down his life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.